Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast where we explore important issues on the peripheries of clinical medicine in Singapore. Today, we speak to Dr. Sudesna Roy Chowdhury, who developed a COVID-19-related translation website during the COVID-19 crisis. Dr. Sudesna has received the Her World Woman of the Year Award 2020 and actively advocates for patients from disenfranchised backgrounds who experience difficulties in accessing healthcare. Today, Dr. Sudesna shares with us her motivations behind setting up the website, and her personal experiences working with migrant workers that have led her to become a strong advocate for them. We discuss the repercussions that may result, but nevertheless emphasize the importance of speaking up. Finally, we ask Dr. Sudesna about ways we can engage in causes which are dear to us so as to make society a more supportive one for all. Hi Sudesna, before we get into the interview, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I would like to describe myself as doctor by day, dancer by night, and sometimes bathroom singer as well. I'm a child of the brown diaspora, an immigrant person in Singapore, and overall a very passionate female. I really like the term passionate female. (laughs) So I understand that you care quite a lot about social justice at large. Could you tell us, is this something that you always felt strongly about or was there sort of a turning point from which you started to feel more passionate and take action for the causes that you do? I do think it's something I always cared about, but nothing awakened me the way COVID did. And I think COVID to me heightened all the inequalities in society that already existed. Did you see something in the course of COVID or was there a particular statistic that stood out to you that awakened you as you would say? With any healthcare crisis like this, it will disproportionately affect all vulnerable societies. So one of these are obviously migrant workers, which I think receive a lot of media attention, which is great. As long as you are a vulnerable population in society, you will be disadvantaged in terms of your access to healthcare, even simple healthcare rights. So for example, so many migrant workers were tested and swapped for COVID, but they would not be told their results, even if they're positive. They just did not have that right of knowing their own result, which is ridiculous. It would never happen to a able-bodied, cisgendered Singaporean. I think if anyone has regular civic values and they were aware of any of this, they would be equally affronted. Let's just talk a little bit about the COVID crisis and how the translation page started. Could you share about what has the growth of this page taught you, both good and bad? So I'll start off with the good things. I really did see the spirit of the community. A lot of people stepped forward, and not just Bengalis, but even non-Bengali-speaking Singaporeans or foreigners who just wanted a way to help. So they would offer, for example, their resources in website building for free, and even larger corporations like Singtel tried to see how can they like help us with our movement by, for example, creating a hotline for interpreters. It really made me feel that, you know what, people want to help, and I think the lack of help in general in our society just comes from the fact that number one we're all very caught up with our day-to-day lives so if people create an avenue to help for example hey come and volunteer on this page to be a interpreter for free people will step forward so creating that avenue was very crucial and important my second point is still back to community just from this website work i met a lot of other people who were doing work in the same field like-minded and had similar visions or could see the systems inequalities because people love to blame individuals and it's really never an individual issue. So meeting these people has helped me frame those ideas I have in my mind and 
try to continue doing good work because you can't do this alone. All of this work, you are, you'll definitely burn out. You know, when you feel tired, you need to take a step back. You need to let other people help you carry that weight. So finding these people in my life have changed the direction of my life right now. And of course, with every good thing, I mean, I do have bad points, I guess. I felt like there was a lot of performatism in the media. Three or four days after I had published my website, I felt like nothing really came out of that. It was just a pat on my back and then a lot more inaction after that. I feel that a lot of these grassroots movements that came out during COVID was an urgent response to all the gaps in our system. The second thing is, as with a lot of progressive movements, we try to stay non-hierarchical. There's no name, it's just a website and there are anonymous faces behind it. That's the whole point. The power is in the strength of the community and not in corporate name and branding and marketing and HR. Because of that, it also loses some momentum and drive because you are relying on people's spare time and goodwill. So yes, in a way, I've also seen that it's lost the steam that it had in April, but it's okay because the April response was truly an urgent, rapid response to a global healthcare crisis. And right now, the people who are still doing work in the field are also people who do want to do this long term. And then we have people who, for various circumstances, maybe they can't do this, and that's okay. And that's why they rely on people like us to create the avenues where they can help when they do have capacity. As the page grew so quickly, surely there must have been some gaps for it to have needed to grow so much. If we think about the migrant worker community in relation to COVID. Today, as we do this interview, is actually the first day of phase three for Singapore's reopening. So as Singaporeans in the quote-unquote community are now allowed to gather in groups of up to eight, our migrant worker friends who are still living in dormitories remain pretty much in lockdown. What comes to mind when you think of all this? Actually, all workers in dormitories are still under quarantine. They can only go to work and back. Some of them have three hours of free time at their recreation centres. For example, one of these friends of mine, he is only free from 5 to 8 on a Friday evening. And it's ridiculous because that means when I want to meet him, I have to travel all the way to the west in Panjuru at his dorm. And three hours in an entire week of freedom, I mean... It really is just prison and it's ridiculous. The fact that they go to work and then they get paid $18 a day, it's so ridiculous. I know as Singaporeans, it's not like we can change that, but the only way we can move forward is to have solidarity with the other people in our population who are facing these injustices. Solidarity doesn't have to be in one form. Some people think it's shouting on social media and it's really not. It can come in many forms. It can be conversations over family dinners. Because Singapore is very far away from that stage where we can actually go out to the streets and protest. We can't even talk about migrant worker issues and have people understand us immediately because we just truly don't know enough. Even googling their issues or reading an article or listening to people who want to talk about this is in a way helping yourself understand this problem a bit better. So when we look at the way the migrant worker community and foreign domestic workers, it's clear that there is a very stark difference in how they are treated compared to the average Singaporean. When I used to intern at an NGO that supports migrant workers, and I would talk to others about how unfairly they are treated, sometimes I would get responses about how they have it much better here than they do in their home country, or that it was a choice for them to come to Singapore to work. How do you usually respond to statements like this? I do get that a lot. 
And to that, I have to say that you cannot look at Singapore in isolation. The reason why Singapore is so wildly successful in a neighborhood where the countries around us are not Don't we have to think about why is that the case? Yes, there are factors such as good governance, but also the fact that we have exploited the countries around us. We bring in these able-bodied men and women from different countries to do the labor that we do not want to do. We bring in women from these countries to take care of our children, to take care of our elderly so that we can go to the office and make more money while we deny them their off days, while we deny them basic human rights. People complain on Instagram about the fact that their domestic worker eats too much food. This is ridiculous when they say that, hey, it's better than what it is back at home. We are also driving them towards poverty because we just exploit these countries so that we can get richer. Likewise, when they say that it's a choice for them to come to work, I don't really think there's much of a choice. When someone sells you an idea saying that you should come to this foreign country where money rains from the sky, and they hear that, and then their reality is so starkly different back at home where they have many mouths to feed or they I mean, literally living in poverty. I mean, I think it's very difficult to try to explain to people like us and even me, who all have a roof over our heads or like food on the table to really empathize. So to look at them and say, oh, you had a choice to come here when they were put in that position is heartless and unempathetic. To make this a bit more scientific, if you go back to evolution, the reason why humans have prevailed in the species is not because we are survival of the fittest, but it's really more because of mutual aid. Because humans were the most efficient species, to learn how to coexist and help each other so that we could progress as homo sapiens. So it's really not about pitting each other against each other who can make the most money or this migrant worker is costing me $20 a day and it's easier if I just sack him and send him home. We need to take more responsibility for the people in our country and I hope more people start to think more towards mutual aid. I think it's very nuanced that you brought up how we've all been brainwashed in the system when we start seeing people as numbers. So on that note, what do you think a post-COVID world will look like for the migrant worker community in Singapore? So some of you may have heard the statistic that 47% of migrant workers are affected by COVID. And I've had people tell me that, oh, we're so lucky that it's in this very able-bodied young community where not a lot of them had ICU admissions or deaths. I think the scary part is that no one in this world really knows what a post-COVID world looks like, but we're starting to see some semblance of it. So there has been increased reports of thromboembolic events in people who are affected by COVID. We're talking about heart attack, stroke, and deep vein thrombosis that can become a pulmonary embolism. All of these things we just don't understand that well, but we've already seen an increased incidence of these in patients that have no past medical history, they're aged 40 or 50, and I mean, they're migrant workers, you, you know how fit they are, you see how much they exercise. It's scary world to me. I think we need to take responsibility of two things, one of which is post-infectious complications. What I just mentioned about thromboembolic events, there needs to be more education on what the symptoms of these events look like and more honesty as well. So there's already been two cases of someone with a heart attack and someone with a stroke in the patient profile that I just described. 40-year-old, no past medical history. So TWC2 and home 
which are local organisations that advocate for migrant workers, have been trying to fundraise for them because we are absolutely responsible for the fact that this has happened to them. They did not have a choice in the kind of housing arrangement that they were put in and many of them got COVID because of the squalid conditions they were in or the fact that there were 35 people in one room with absolutely no privacy, no hygiene barriers, no form of sanitation that's acceptable in a first world country like Singapore. Speaking of honesty, during COVID, in terms of our numbers, there was a 40-year-old migrant worker that had an ischemic heart event where he passed away and it was not reported as a COVID death. So he was part of the tally for total number of COVID-affected patients, but not part of the death tally. Now we know that the reason he had the heart attack is because of COVID, but the death tally has not been updated. Secondly, in many dormitories, such as S11, once the swab positive rate came back more than 20%, they stopped swabbing the dorm completely. They just assume the whole dorm is positive. Yes, you are assuming worst case scenario, that's great, like let's treat all of them as positive, but also this deflated our national numbers So I think this lack of transparency is a huge issue. The second thing what a post-COVID world looks like also is paying more attention to mental health. Mental health-wise, a lot of people on the ground, a lot of the very great leaders among the migrant worker community, they have been speaking up about how the next two to three years is going to be huge for them in terms of mental health because a lot of job insecurity has occurred over the past few months. A lot of health insecurity as well. A lot of them have been diagnosed with new conditions. I think coping with all of this is going to be difficult. I'm glad a lot of doctors talk about it as well, that our physical and mental health are totally in line with each other. So I work in a Changi General Hospital. Like Every migrant worker that comes in for gastritis or a headache or so many somatic symptoms, we are never able to tie them together into one diagnosis. And we always have to get a psych referral because there's always a psych issue going on. At least 90% of the workers that have come in have had a psych referral for the ones that I've personally seen. We just have to acknowledge these facts. So I think that's what a post-COVID world looks like. I've encountered a fair number of migrant workers in the hospitals that I'm posted to as a student right now and would like to know what more can be done in our capacity as individual healthcare students or healthcare professionals to level out the gaps that we know exist. Obviously, on a systems level, there's very little we can do. But on a personal level, I think the most direct impact is by trying to understand them in their own language People who don't speak Chinese and are listening to this podcast, I'm sure we've all been in positions where we have a Mandarin-speaking patient, and we don't just leave it at that. You go find a nurse who can speak Mandarin, or you ask your colleague to translate for you, and it's the exact same courtesy to anyone, whether they speak dialect, whether they speak Bengali, Tamil, Burmese, to find someone that speaks in their language so that we can give them the healthcare that they need. I know it's more difficult for the languages that are not so common because you may not be able to find someone on that floor that speaks that language. Which is why the resources, for example, the website that is giving, or even amongst your friends, even if it's someone's, for example, helper that speaks Tagalog, and that's the only person you know that speaks in their language, go ahead, ask your friend, hey, are they free? So I've done that before, like I have messaged five or six people asking if they speak Bahasa, because I had a patient that only spoke Bahasa and her employer sacked her after she got admitted into the hospital because the employer didn't want to pay for her medical bills. And we weren't sure why she had a fall from height and whether it was a suicide attempt, for example. So all of these things are so complex and intricate. You cannot do this in English or you cannot expect her to understand in English. And it really helped. I can confidently say that I improved 
my patient care to her. So whatever you guys do, if you can go home at night and feel proud of yourself and know you did your best for your patient, that's really good enough. When we encounter someone that doesn't speak English, I think we do like sometimes brush off certain symptoms or certain things we, they say. I might be doing that as well for my Mandarin-speaking patients. So I think we all just owe it to our patients to try to take that extra step. Do you think it is a doctor's responsibility to go beyond that? For example, to deliberately look for people who speak a patient's native language? And why would you say that this is a responsibility that we have? Being an advocate for a patient goes by in so many ways. So I'm going to give two examples. In the hospital, even within the team, you will notice that the person who spends the most time with the patient is the junior doctor, which is in this case myself. When I tell the senior doctor about the patient's issues, I am an advocate for that patient. When I, for example, mention that, okay, this patient is very, very concerned about this rash, patient is not able to go home today, it's not safe because he's having issues at home or they don't have a helper yet. These are all moments where you really are advocating for your patient. And I think as medical students graduate and become house officers, you will start to realize it yourself. Another thing in the hospital, I remember there was a 14-year-old that was sexually active and this is when I was in pediatrics. Just reminding my team like, hey, should we give her the HPV vaccination? It's absolutely irrelevant in her case. So something simple like that go a long way as well, especially in medicine. We have so much power to change these people's lives. So all the more we should use our skill. Outside of the hospital, something simple that I do is even having the SCDF My Responder app having the notifications on to near my place and my workplace, places that I know I will frequent. So every time there's a case, I get alerted. And again, it's all about capacity. If you're busy or you don't have capacity that day to go and help to do CPR, it's okay. If you do, all the more we should be an advocate for, for example, for me, I feel like I'm an advocate for the elderly in my neighborhood because I live in a silver neighborhood and I have a lot of CPR cases in every few months. There'll be someone that collapses in my neighborhood and I try to go down. Even if you reach at the same time as SCDF, there's so much you can do. Simple things, right? It's just everyday things that puts you in a position where you realize, yeah, I am advocating, but I wouldn't say that it's our responsibility just because I also recognize that not everyone has that kind of capacity and it's okay. Have you found that being a doctor and perhaps even being a junior doctor specifically carries certain advantages when it comes to fighting for social justice? And could you compare that to when you were seeing similar issues as a medical student on the ward? Absolutely. I think the higher we climb in our medical career, the more responsibilities we have, not just as a doctor anymore, but now you're representing this department. So there's a lot more freedom as a junior house officer. And I would say there's a lot more freedom as a medical student as well, more so than as a house officer. Also in terms of freedom of your time and energy. So I would really encourage anyone listening to the podcast who might have some capacity to do more, to try to explore, think about what do you really care about and try to jump into it. Think outside of the box, outside of the usual NGO and see what you can do. So yeah, this freedom to speak is great, guys. Use it. So some people might view the scope of a doctor's work as being quite specific to treating the disease that a patient has. You mentioned about all the mental health repercussions of this crisis on the migrant worker community. And I recall there were actually quite a number of suicides reported in the news some time back. What do you think the average Singaporean or non-migrant worker who's in Singapore can do in this regard? 
I think right now, we just need to start small. We just need to make friendships. In the hospital that I work in, for example, on Deepavali Day, I just went downstairs with like Deepavali snacks. There were 70 of these migrant workers. Not all of them were there. I just like shared snacks with them, sat down, had a conversation. I also recognized that sometimes it's not as easy, especially for a woman, for example, to sit down in a group of men. I do think of all of that. But just creating some opportunities. If you feel unsafe doing that, you can always ask a friend who is a male and an ally to come and join you and have a conversation, sit down, have tea. Doesn't that go a long way for mental health? Isn't that how we support our own local Singaporean friends who have mental health issues? It's about just reaching out and checking in. So since we talked a little bit about some of the patients that we see uh, in the hospital and how we can improve their care, you've actually been quite vocal on social media about some of the issues that you see in the wards day to day. And some of these have been quite sensitive. I recall seeing a post about a migrant worker being coerced to discharge at his own risk by his employer instead of receiving a proper workup for his significantly low hemoglobin levels. What do you hope to achieve by being vocal about these incidences that you see on the ward, particularly being vocal about them on social media? I think there's there's strength in our numbers, in our, in our community. Using social media is one of the more simple ways of talking about an issue because the people in my circle, many of them who are house officers, who are first touch for any patient that comes to the hospital after the emergency department, would read these and just think further and fight a bit harder. So for example, the case that you brought up, the medical officer that attended to this case really fought really hard for the patient. He spoke to the employer, kept telling him how it wasn't safe. The employer actually told the medical officer to lie to the patient about the risks of AOR, which of course my medical officer friend refused to do so. Social media is just a way to make people have conversations and even if you can change their behavior by 1% towards a more equitable behavior, I mean that's worth it for me. I also want to point out that it's not just about how we can become better doctors but also about using our own voice. So social media is really not just for me to talk about migrant workers, it's for me to talk about everything and anything that affects my lives and the lives of my friends. So I know that you speak up a lot about various issues in hopes of rallying more people to create change. With being vocal, do you ever worry about any negative repercussions? And do you ever censor yourself? And what goes through your mind if you do have to censor yourself? And how do you make decisions? with regards to self-censorship? To answer how do I censor myself, I think it's weighing the risk and benefit of is saying this worth it? Am I putting everything on the line? So yeah, there are days that I want to go to the street in front of Marina Bay Sands, hold up a sign to say this many migrant workers died building this building. But at the same time, I don't know if like that's worth it, right? So that's how I censor myself because I feel like not everything needs to be necessarily vocal Maybe I can just do the work and let the work speak for itself. So for example, a few friends and I, we've started something called Migrant Mutual Aid. Mutual Aid is a concept that's quite new to the Singapore society as well. Some Singaporeans are doing it through something called the Where's Mutual Aid Project. It's a spreadsheet where people put up their needs like they need $600 for rent. And when you listen to their stories, it's really not because they just want free money, but it's because they're just so disenfranchised that they're not able to have any access to grants or jobs. So people who have more financial comfort, they do put their money in and help each other. So we're trying to do the same system for migrant workers as well. We usually talk about being vocal 
as something that's very risky. But have you found, you know, any benefits to being vocal? And could you share more about that? So many benefits. I think when you are vocal about it, you let people know that this is what I'm about. These are the beliefs that I have. These are the values that I hold. And this is the work that I'm interested in. I have a friend who is vocal about her work in FGM, that stands for Female Genital Mutilation. And she does this work specifically within her own Malay Muslim community. And I would like to jump in here and say that, number one, I'm not part of this community, so I would speak about this with a lot of the sensitivity it deserves. And also not everyone relates to it and most of my Muslim friends that I've spoke to them about FGM have told me that there's no cultural or religious backing to this practice. It's just something that happens to happen in that community. So after I saw her posts about FGM, I'm an ally so I'm jumping in and I'm telling her like how can I help especially as a doctor who might know people that might contribute more in your research. So now I've been trying to find other Malay Muslim doctors that are willing to work with her on this issue. So it's just something simple like that where being vocal kind of tells you like okay these are my allies, this is how we can work together. And most importantly, it's really not about virtue signaling or telling people that like, hey, I'm such a great person, I care about all of these things. But honestly, being vocal lets people know that these are my cards. So you want to work with me? Come on board. So we've talked about being vocal about issues that we see day to day, whether in the course of our work or otherwise. And I guess on the similar note, some of the injustices that you see on the ward are not something that you can mitigate as a house officer. How do you contend with having these issues play out right before you, and yet they remain out of your control given your position as a junior doctor specifically. So I initially mentioned one of the cases, the Indonesian helper who had a fall from height and because the employer didn't want to pay for the medical bills, she was sent back to Indonesia. So of course, these injustices make me feel like, how are there not laws protecting these people? But again, what can I do? I guess that's the thing. You talk about it outside of the hospital to make people realize that these things do happen in the hospital. And then within the hospital, which is your question about what can we do, is just like the little things. So for me, it was finding people who speak Bahasa. I don't have the perfect answer. And I would love for people listening to the podcast if they have suggestions on what they can do as well. Because I really think this is community work and all of us need to figure out what that answer looks like together. As we wrap up, there might be many listeners who feel strongly for certain social justice causes but face some challenges as they go about advocating for them. I think one of the challenges that is pretty common would be not knowing how to talk to someone who disagrees with social justice at large or who disagrees with specific causes that we think are very important. How do you personally navigate talking to people who disagree with you? So this is something I'm still exploring myself. It's kind of finding that in-between where I recognize someone who will actually listen to the points I have to make versus someone who's just trying to rile me up. I know you've written about activist burnout before in an article with the Singapore Medical Association. Activist burnout is what occurs when an activist starts to feel hopeless, frustrated, maybe even cynical about the very cause that they push for. And this usually happens after long periods of advocacy. Do you have any advice on how to prevent this activist burnout from seeping in? Have a team. It really, really helps. I think when I first started this, I was alone. And I wrote that article when I was alone as well. 
and I was just overwhelmed with the amount of messages and emails and everybody wants to help but nobody knows how and everyone has appointed me as this unofficial leader of migrant workers all of a sudden and I need to figure this crisis out by myself. It was a lot. And also moving away from that kind of worship or hero mentality, that notion that this one person is going to save it. I mean, I think at first I did feel, wow, I'm doing really great work and I feel so great. But And then obviously you had to realize, like, okay, firstly, one person can't solve it. Secondly, the more people you have, the more it's community work, the more you spread that burden of labor, including emotional labor. We need to take breaks. We need to have a team. All of these things make me feel a lot better. I'm actually even learning this from a migrant worker himself. His name is Zakir Hussain. He is a very prominent migrant writer in Singapore and he started the organization called Migrant Writers of Singapore. In one of my conversations with him, he said that one day when Zakir is no longer here, this movement needs to continue. And that's exactly the kind of behavior that I want to model. Learning from him that you just can't have this centered on one person. It has to be community work. Having a team such a such a big thing. I didn't realize the importance of it until I now see how breezy things are. It's such a blessing. So to close, I have two questions. Firstly, what are your current and future plans? And secondly, are there any resources or channels that you'd like to direct our listeners to so that they can better support social justice, whether for migrant workers or otherwise? Current plans-wise, I'm working on Migrant Mutual Aid that I already mentioned and I will leave the link with you guys to share. I'm also working on an initiative to purchase novels and books directly from migrant authors so that we circumvent the 40% or 60% fees because I would love for my money to go directly to the migrant author himself. And they're often stuck in very exploitative contracts. And I hope there's more that comes up in the future. In the future, I also would want to do gynecology because I also feel women are systemically disadvantaged in healthcare. So I hope Singapore also funds more research into vulnerable communities. I don't think we know enough about prisoners, HIV-positive patients, bisexual patients, sexual health, women, of course. Really, like, so many groups. So all of these things are conversations that I wish everyone tries to get themselves more into. I'm trying to learn to do that myself as well. Get involved with your own community that you resonate the most with in terms of the causes you believe in. And organize, grassroots, everything you can do in your own capacity. Get involved with NGOs that are doing good work, especially advocacy work, because how long can you be giving out free hand sanitizers and masks? After a while, it's time to look at the systems that we can change. Thank you, Sudesna, for your time. I've really enjoyed speaking to you, and I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed hearing this episode. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 